love Easter. Beautiful day. Um, season is just turning beautiful right now. Just reminds you so many things of resurrection. You know, we go from cold to warm, and it makes you think of all the earth's vegetation that's kind of resurrecting back to life. Um, you look at the sun each day, it raises, and it makes you think, wow, God could have chosen about any way he wanted to to start our days, right? He created this thing. He invented it. He could have chosen any way in his own brilliance to start our day each day, but he chose to start each day with resurrection. I think to remind you of something. Like the prophet Jeremiah said in Lamentations that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, right? Resurrection, resurrection. The only talk of dying around here is the dying of my diet with the candy that my kids got today. <laughs> Everything else is resurrection. <laughs> I love this day, too, because I get to look out and see a bunch of people dressed like Easter eggs. It's my favorite part of the year. I'm trying to pick a winner right now. Fix, fix the leader in the clubhouse with that uh, baby blue back there. <laughs> He's looking good, but boy, it's good to see you all this morning. If you're visiting with us, we want you to know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only reason we are here. And it's the only reason we actually wake up each and every day with a sense of hope and a belief that even though we face trials, tragedy, suffering, and difficulty, and even though we experience pain, heartache, that we have a deep and abiding conviction that something better is on its way. And in the process of something better coming, we have an immeasurable amount of joy in the present, in the present today, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Last week in Hebrews chapter 5, we began discussing Jesus fulfilling this role as the greatest priest and one of the things we mentioned last week was that um, we got to really understand what a priest is because a lot of times in our context, we don't really talk about priests very much. I think you're probably all familiar with the word. Usually when you say the word priest, people either think of the Catholic Church or even though there's other denominations that use priest. Or we think of maybe the Old Testament where there were those men of the line of Aaron, the Levites who became priests. But we started off by clarifying that a priest, the work of a priest is just someone who mediates or intervenes on behalf of someone else, steps in to help somebody else. We oftentimes, as I mentioned, see this in the form of religion, but we see priest-like work happening all the time. When a friend helps another friend get a job, that's a priestly type of behavior. When a marriage counselor is called upon to help uh, reconcile, facilitate dialogue so that a marriage can survive. That's priestly-like work. And what we mentioned last week is that Jesus Christ is the greatest priest because he mediates for us in our most important relationship, the reconnection of ourselves to our maker. He does that for us. Last week, I pointed out that Jesus is the greatest priest you'll ever find because of the quality of priest that he is. He was a called priest by God. God called him into that job. He's a compassionate priest. No one understands our darkness and difficulties like Jesus. He had his dark days, and he understands what it's like for us. And he's a complete priest. 
He's not a priest with empty hands waiting for you to bring an offering. He's a priest that brought his own offering himself. Jesus is the greatest priest because of his quality. Today I'm going to show you that Jesus is the greatest priest, not just because of his quality of person, but because of his ability, what he actually is able to do as a priest. So what I'm excited about this being the day that people recognize the resurrection of Jesus is we're going to find out what Jesus actually is able to do now that he's resurrected, okay? So here, and um, pardon me, in Hebrews chapter 7, the entire chapter, verses 1 through 28, is a very elaborate and in-depth explanation that Jesus is the superior high priest, the greatest high priest that you could ever imagine. But it all gets distilled, simplified, boiled down, in these last verses that Michael read for us, verses 23 to 25. And before we get to me really explaining this great ability that Jesus has, what he's able to do for us, there are three really simple facts I've got to point out to you that kind of um, bring us to this conclusion. So let's start there. First of all, in verses 23 and 24, I want you to see the first thing that's true about Jesus as a high priest. The first thing is that he is available. His availability makes him a great high priest. You know, I've had many coaches in my life in playing sports that, that have said this, that a player's greatest ability is their availability, right? You can have all of the talent in the world. You can have all the skill. You can have incredible potential. You can have great abilities. But if you're actually not available, if you're hurt all the time or you don't come to practice or the games, if you're not available, all of that talent, gifts, and ability goes to waste, right? Think about the number of athletes in our culture that have um, shown great promise, but through injury or through um, bad choices or mishaps, have not lived out their career. And we've said, wow, what a waste, right? Missed opportunity. You see, this is important. The writer of Hebrews wants us to know this really simple fact about Jesus. That's what makes the resurrection so important for you to understand, that his availability now is for now and always. The Hebrew writer tells us more and more, look at verses 23 and 24. He says, he compares Jesus to the priests under the rule of Levi, the Levite priests, under the old law. He says the former priests were many. There had to be a lot of them because they were prevented by death from continuing in their office. Seems like a pretty logical statement, right? There had to be a lot of priests under the old law because they died, just like all human beings do die. But in contrast to that, verse 24, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Jesus, first and foremost, is the greatest priest because of his availability. Now, secondly, what does he actually do? Now that he's alive, he exists, he holds this priesthood continually, permanently, because he constantly is existing. The question then is, what is he actually doing in his priesthood right now? If I asked you, right, what is Jesus doing, like right now, I mean, 1048, I see the time, the preacher sees the time. 1048 a.m. On Sunday, April 16th, what is Jesus Christ doing right now? Do you know? The Bible's going to tell you. 
In verse 25, the end of verse 25, let's jump to the end of it. He says, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So if someone comes up to you and says, okay, at 1048 a.m. on April 16th, 2017, what is Jesus doing right now? Your answer is he's interceding for the saints. At the right hand of God, Jesus Christ right now is actively interceding for the saints. He makes intercession. That means to intervene on behalf of someone else. You know, for the longest time, I thought intercession just meant like um, to plead on behalf of somebody else, to kind of beg for mercy. You know, my brother was occasionally feeling kind for me. He would intercede with my parents. If I were in trouble, he would walk up to them and say, Oh, let's just give him another chance. You know, maybe, maybe he doesn't deserve the punishment. Dad, he doesn't need a spanking this time. Or dad, you know, don't ground him for a week. He would kind of beg for my dad's mercy on my behalf. But my brother couldn't really bring anything to bear on that, uh, that begging. All he could do is say, please, dad, let him off the hook. Probably because he wanted somebody to wrestle or to play basketball with. So he didn't want me to be in trouble. But usually when I think of intercession, I oftentimes think of somebody basically without any um, substance begging for mercy but you know inside of this word intercession there's a hidden gem there's something in the root word that you don't see in the English that I've got to tell you because it lights this word up when you get it inside of the word intercession is the root word that means to hit the mark to hit the nail on the head to draw back the arrow and strike right in the middle of the bullseye. Now, why in the world would hit the mark be in the middle of the word intercede? It's strange, right? Well, it's only strange because I usually think of the word intercession as just begging for mercy. You see, the intervention or the intercession of Jesus actually solves our problem. It is not Jesus in a feeble manner begging for God to overlook our sin. Rather, it is Jesus reminding God that God has already justly punished my sin. And there's a major difference. You've got to get that right now. Jesus is not up at the throne of God begging, saying, please forgive Michael. Please forgive Tim. I know they've messed up again, but they really didn't mean it, God. I'm so sorry they did, but... but Man, they just really mean they're sorry, God. I'm begging you to forgive them. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's hitting the nail on the head up there right now. What it means is he's standing next to God saying, Ricky has sinned and Anthony has sinned and Randy has sinned. And don't you forget, God, that I paid for that sin already. I want you to be just, God. That cause you to tremble a little bit? That Jesus is before the throne of God saying, I'm begging you to be just. You have justly punished their sin. His intercession has some substance to it. His intercession has a record, a receipt. He is a living, breathing receipt. You know why you get a receipt? At the, I always say, no now, no, I'm good. I'll just look at my own. I don't even look online anymore. It's terrible. But you know, people, do you want to, you know why they give you a receipt? Because when you buy something, they give you a paper receipt, and if you're walking around the store and a big scary man comes up and says, hey, did you steal that? What do you pull out? The receipt. And you say, no, it's paid for. 
Jesus is a living, breathing receipt. He stands in front of God and says, that sin that he or she has committed, I know they failed you. They know they failed you. But that sin has already been paid for. Now watch how this works, okay? So we see his availability. We see his activity, what he's doing. And now look at his avenue. The middle of verse 25. That he is interceding for those who draw near to God through him or in him. Now this thought of drawing near to God was absolutely terrifying to a first century Jew. You see, they had a constant reminder of God's holiness, God's otherliness, God's righteousness and God's justice and God's wrath. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, they had in front of their eyes a temple and priests who the very first thing you walk into when you walk into the temple courtyard is the altar, which was not a pretty and button-up kind of place. It was bloody and gory and nasty. These guys had a constant reminder of the wrath of God that hung over their head because of their sin. And so the idea of drawing near to God was so foreign to them because that was only reserved for one man once a year, the high priest. And they had to be so careful that they had to make sure he had no spot. His sin was atoned for. In fact, when he would go into the Holy of Holies, they had bells on his robe to make sure he was alive. It was still ringing. In fact, legend says it, that they used to tie a rope around his leg. You know this? He would walk into the Holy of Holies. And if he didn't come back in a while, they'd fish him out of there. Because nobody would go in. Because going into the presence of God was Here's the weakness. If you look back in verse 20, look in verse 20. It says this, and it was not without an oath that Jesus became, uh, pardon me, verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside. He's talking about the law of Moses. Because of its weakness and uselessness. Now, what made the law of Moses weak? He's going to explain in verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. You see, the law could atone for sin. It could provide forgiveness. But the thing the law could not do was create in the hearts of the worshipers a perfection that allowed them to draw near to God. But he says in verse 19, on the other hand, in Jesus Christ, a better hope is introduced through which we can now draw near. Six times the book of Hebrews is going to tell you to draw near, to have confidence to come near to the throne of grace. You see, their system was not effective in drawing people near. The law of Moses could appease God, but it never allowed us to please God because it did not make us perfect. But in him, with Christ as our priest, we can now draw near to God. So do you understand these three facts? Jesus Christ is always available. What he's doing right now is interceding with evidence as a living, breathing receipt that sin has been paid for to pave the way for you to draw near to God. Great. But what still is the ability of this priest? What does he do? What can he do for you? Look in verse 25, the very beginning. Consequently, you're about to learn his ability. He is able to save 
to the uttermost. I believe one of the most poetic phrases in the Bible is this statement. I wish I used the word uttermost more common in my language. Just, I, I've never really found a chance to use it. I don't really know how to use it other than in this text where he says, Jesus Christ, as our great priest, is able to save to the uttermost. You see, he can save to the uttermost. Priests under the old law could save. They provided an escape from the penalty of sin. But what they could not do was provide power over the power of sin. Let me say that clear. I apologize for that. I want to say it better to you. Priests under the old law could save by allowing you to escape the penalty of sin. But they could never allow you to escape the power of sin. You see, sin is described in the Bible as a master, a ruler. It's not just the bad behavior you do. It's the power that drives you to the bad behavior. And this phrase that Jesus, as our priest, can save to the uttermost is so important for you to understand. That he doesn't just allow you escape from a bad destination to a better destination. How we oftentimes think of the word salvation, that you, you just miss the bad spot, but you get to go to the good spot. Jesus saves to the uttermost. That means that he saves completely. He saves entirely. The best way to say it, Jesus Christ saves all the way through us to every part of our being. You see, his intention and his ability as our priest is to work his perfecting love through every fiber of your being to eradicate sin from your life. What Jesus is wanting to do is not like the old priest under the old law to just provide you an escape from the bad place. He's wanting to empower you to eradicate sin in your entire life. He wants to get to the heart of sin. You know, Jesus spoke about this in Mark chapter 7, when he said it's not the things outside of a person that really defile them, but it's actually that which is inside of you that defiles you. That which comes out outside of you. What Jesus was teaching us is that actually it's from our heart, from inside of us, that all of our sin springs up forth and manifests itself in the world. Let me try to illustrate it this way. I'll share about myself. Growing up in junior high and high school, and then a little bit into college, one of the sins that I struggled with greatly was lying. I lied frequently, a lot of times. And I wasn't always sure why. I just learned how to lie early in my life. Um, and it frustrated me. In fact, even when I was calling myself a Christian, I still struggled with lying. Even when I was trying to follow Christ, even as I found myself in pulpits preaching, I still struggled with lying. It was strange for me. It was, I, I couldn't understand, but there was something deeper in me than just the problem of lying because I knew that I was lying. I knew that I needed to stop. I was aware of that. And it, no matter how hard I tried, no matter how much I was determined, I still would fall into that struggle. Because you see, there's actually something deeper going on. For me, what I was struggling with was not just the problem of lying, but the fear of rejection. I was scared to death of being rejected by people. And in that fear, Satan would whisper to me, man, if you just lie to them, they'll love you. Just expand the truth a little bit. Just tell them something more impressive about yourself, and they'll love you. And I was convinced that by lying, I would get love and not be rejected. You see, what Martin Luther called this was, he said it was the sin 
underneath the sins, plural. The sin underneath the sins, and that is this. That is the lie that the love and grace of God is not enough for us. And that we've got to take matters into our own hands and solve our own problems. You see, you can take any of the behaviors of sin that we observe. And there are sins underneath those sins. For instance, maybe you struggle with fits of rage and anger. You just can't control your temper. You just blow up on people. Maybe you get frustrated that you're not God and people don't obey your will. And you're angry about that. Or maybe you struggle with addiction. Maybe not just drugs and alcohol, but maybe you struggle with food addiction or sleep addiction. Maybe you're lazy. Perhaps you're seeking a comfort to escape. Maybe you struggle because you're a workaholic and you just can't stop working. And even when the day is done, you don't put down your phone and stop checking your email. Maybe you can't let it go. Perhaps you're obsessed with proving yourself that you're somebody and you can't stop working. Or maybe you've learned that you only can rely on yourself. Do you see the sin underneath the sin? Or maybe you're tempted and at times you cheat on your taxes or on your tests. Maybe you struggle with the idea that if I'm not the smartest kid in my class, I'm a nobody. So I've got to cheat. Or maybe I need to be more than I am and have more than I've got. Maybe you struggle with greed. Hoard some of your money. Look for ways to cut corners to get more money from people than you really deserve. Maybe you struggle with being in control of things and believe that you have to be sovereign. Or maybe you just want enough money so you can spend it on people and impress them so maybe they'll like you. Maybe you struggle with sexual perversion. There's a multitude of sexual sins that are just crushing our world right now. From infidelity in marriages, which is all just a daydream, by the way, people escaping responsibility and reality. Because you know what? You never pay the mortgage with the person you cheat on. You never argue over money with that person. You never argue about raising kids with that person. It's all just an illusion. Maybe you're just wanting an escape. Or maybe you're struggling with pornography. Because deep down, you're desperately lonely, and that screen never says no to you. That girl on the screen or boy on the screen never says no. And what you want is just to be known and loved. You see, there's sin underneath all of our sins. And the sin is this, this belief that God is not enough, and I've got to solve it myself. And I'll tell you the day, I know the day I stopped lying. I came across this video on YouTube. Uh, you can look it up. It's by this acapella group called Watershed Worship. It's got great songs. And somebody took a song um, called Face to Face by Watershed Worship, and they put it to the images of the Passion of Christ, the movie. And in that, in that song, I remember coming across it. And it says uh, in the lyrics, Before you were even born, I wore a crown of thorns, so one day we could be together. I let them torture me. They nailed me to a tree so one day we could be together. And for the first time in my life, I wasn't afraid of any of your rejection because I had the greatest acceptance in the world. And that was the day I stopped lying. The sin underneath the sin of lying was I was afraid of being rejected. But when I had acceptance from God, His grace was enough. His love mattered to me I stopped you see the solution to your sin is found in the grace and love of Jesus Christ when he says he saves to the uttermost he means he does not just take decent people and make them religious 
but it means he takes broken people and makes them whole. And every person in here is broken in some way. We just don't always know it. That's why he wants us to come and see our brokenness and his power. Ultimately, Jesus as our priest means that anyone in any place burdened by any problem is not out of the reach of the power of this priest's ability to save you to the uttermost, to the end of all of your saving needs. How do you obey? Two things when we're out of here. Number one, I want you to know with certainty his availability and his action, what Jesus is doing right now. You've got to know that. And number two, I want you to take up his offer to draw near to God and seek a salvation that is beyond just a formal religion and really becoming the person that God wanted you to be, to be whole in Jesus Christ. But the answer is in him. If you need him, you can come as we stand and sing.